Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, you will find that, or at least where we're going to be, on page 883. As we saw last week, the time has come, and everything that Jesus has said would happen in terms of uh, him being in Jerusalem, has begun to be fulfilled. And as we pick up again this morning, Jesus is going to be sentenced to death, and we're going to be reminded of why all of this is happening in the first place as we see a living picture of the gospel. And so we're in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 66. It says, When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so last week we saw that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus by leading the, the Jewish religious leaders to him in the middle of the night. And so Jesus has been arrested and he's been taken to the house of the high priest where he has been denied by Peter and he has been mocked and, and beaten by guards. And we know from the other gospel accounts that this torture continues throughout the early uh, hours of the morning. And now as we pick up again here in verse 66, we see that as soon as daylight comes, the, the assembly of the elders of the people, meaning the, the chief priests and the scribes, uh, gather together. Uh, and, and this assembly of leaders is referring to the Jewish Supreme Court, which is more commonly known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was composed of, of 70 men, mostly Sadducees, but a, but a few Pharisees. And they served as the final authority for the Jews in all matters of, of law. And so this council convenes and puts Jesus on trial. In verse 67, the council says to him, if you are the Christ, then tell us. And in response, Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you you will not answer. Right, we've seen repeatedly now over the last couple of chapters that the religious leaders are not truly interested in a genuine conversation. Right, they keep trying to trap Jesus or trick him into saying something that would discredit him. And every time Jesus turns the tables and asks them a question, they're unable to answer because of his superior wisdom. So he's asked them things like, was the baptism of John from God or from man? Or, or how can they say that the Christ is the son of David when David calls him Lord? 
And, and over and over again, they have been unwilling to answer. So there's really no point in debating anymore. Jesus knows that the religious leaders have already made up their minds, but he does tell them, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now this statement is, is combining a couple of claims that Jesus has already made. First of all, we've discussed a number of times that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who Daniel sees in a vision, this future ruler who is given authority by God to rule over all of the earth in a kingdom that will never end. And then secondly, to, to Jesus' point a couple of chapters earlier about David referring to the Messiah as Lord in Psalm 110, we saw that the Messiah is going to be more than a mere human. He, he is going to be divine, which is, is implied in the fact that he will sit at the right hand of God. And so Jesus isn't going to argue anymore, but he does declare that these messianic expectations are being fulfilled, with the, the implication that they are being fulfilled in him. And so when the Sanhedrin hears him say this, let's say, well, are you then claiming to be the son of God? And Jesus answers, interestingly, by, by saying, you say that I am. And this response is difficult to understand because obviously the Sanhedrin is not uh, affirming Jesus as the Son of God. And, and we're going to come back to this again in a few minutes. But for right now, I think it's enough for us to recognize that while this is not a clear affirmation of the charge, it's not a denial of the charge either. And, and in verse 71, when, Jesus, when the Sanhedrin hears Jesus' response, they understand him to be claiming that this is true about himself. And so they determine that's enough uh, evidence to condemn him for blasphemy. And they are going to kill him. And so we're going to see what happens next as we pick up again in the beginning of chapter 23. It says, And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So the Sanhedrin has condemned Jesus and sees him worthy of execution. The only problem is that, as we've discussed before, the Jews did not have the authority to, to execute a death sentence on their own. That was reserved for the Roman government. And so in order to put Jesus to death, the Sanhedrin is going to have to convince the Roman governor 
to condemn him as well. The Roman governor is a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is, is an interesting person. He ruled over the region of Judea for right at 10 years. And that 10-year period was characterized by constant headbutting with the Jewish people. He did not like them, and they did not like him. And in fact, back in chapter 13, we, we read briefly about a particularly gruesome encounter that some of the Jews from Galilee had with Pilate when they got on the wrong side of his anger. And in the end, the Jews were actually able to get Pilate deposed when they appealed directly to the emperor. But at this point, they are tolerating each other and doing the best they can to stay out of each other's way, which is going to be important later on. So the religious leaders take Jesus to Pilate's court, and and they accuse him of misleading the Jewish people by, by encouraging them not to pay their taxes and by setting himself up to be a king who is a rival to the emperor, both of which would be serious offenses according to Roman law. Of course, neither of these accusations are true. We read back in chapter 20 that the Pharisees tried to get Jesus to encourage people not to pay their taxes, and Jesus refused to do that. And despite everyone's desire that Jesus be a Jewish king who will overthrow the Roman Empire, he has made it clear repeatedly that that is not what he's here to do. These are false accusations. But of course, Pilate doesn't realize that. And so in verse 3, Pilate turns to Jesus and asks, are you the king of the Jews? You've heard the accusations against you, so what do you have to say for yourself? But in response, Jesus says, you say so. And again, it's hard to to, uh, make sense of what Jesus is saying because, again, Pilate is most certainly not affirming that Jesus is a king who is a rival to the emperor. And there have been various attempts to explain why Jesus is responding the way that he is, but the the best explanation, in my opinion, involves a combination of elements. And so on the one hand, as Jesus is responding to questions about his identity and what he has come to do, he is the Messiah, but not in the sense that that fulfills the common expectations of who the Messiah would be in in being a a military ruler who overthrows the Romans. And so in that sense, you say so is something like saying it is as you say, but not necessarily as you think. And also there's there's an argument to be made that a plea of guilty or not guilty, a, a confession, is something that is given in recognition that a court or a judge or a jury stands in authority over the individual in question. But Jesus is divine. He is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. And and so we could also understand his response as, as answering the question, but in a way that does not acknowledge the authority of the Sanhedrin or even of Pilate over him. In other words, I don't don't answer to you. And so as we try to make sense of Jesus' responses here, I think it's important for us to see that he is not denying the charge. He's not saying, no, you've misunderstood. I am not the king of the Jews. But he's also not affirming that he is the king of the Jews, at least in the sense of of what that would mean to them. So he has to say something for the trial to proceed, but he answers in such a way that... That, that maintains the ambiguity between who he is and who the people expect the Messiah to be, 
and in a way that asserts his authority over every earthly power, even if they don't necessarily perceive his answer in that way. Now, Luke condenses the conversation between Jesus and Pilate that the the other gospel accounts record in much more detail. But in verse 4, Pilate tells the religious leaders that, that he can't find a reason to condemn Jesus for anything. He says, I find no guilt in him. And so part of the hang-up here is probably that for Pilate, anything less than a clear affirmation of the charge is, is not sufficient for a conviction. Whereas for the Sanhedrin, anything less than a clear denial of the charge is ground for a conviction. All right, but this is Pilate's house, and we're playing by Pilate's rules. And so the Sanhedrin's plan appears to be in danger of falling apart because Pilate says, I don't find him guilty of anything. But the Sanhedrin is not giving up. In verse 5, Luke says that they were urgent. Right? They insist that Jesus is public enemy number one and that he needs to be dealt with as such. They tell Pilate that Jesus stirs the people up throughout the region of, of Judea, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. It is just a matter of time before this whole thing blows up out of control. Now when Pilate hears that Jesus started in Galilee, he asks if that's where he's from. And when he realizes that it is where he's from, he sees an opportunity. You see, Galilee falls under the jurisdiction of King Herod, who just happens to be in Jerusalem at this very time in celebrating Passover. And so Pilate orders Jesus to be taken over to Herod for examination, and in hopes that Herod will either find something to convict him of, or he will agree that Jesus is innocent and should be let go. So in verse 8, Jesus gets to Herod, and Herod is excited because he's wanted to see Jesus for some time. In fact, you may remember that Luke mentioned that all the way back in chapter 9. And Herod is hoping that that Jesus will perform a miracle for him. But Jesus is not here to entertain. And so while Herod questions Jesus for, for some time, Luke tells us that Jesus made no answer. And in this, we are reminded again of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53, who's described in verse 7 by saying, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is silent before Herod, but the religious leaders are more than willing to talk. And so they continue to accuse him in hopes of persuading Herod to condemn him. Well, in verse 11, Herod and his guards begin to treat Jesus with contempt. They they mock and they beat him. They sarcastically dress him up in, in royal clothing that is fit for a king. And they send him back to Pilate. And Luke makes an interesting note in verse 12 that Herod and Pilate became friends on this this particular day while they had been enemies previously. And so given Herod's responsibility as as king of the Jews and and Pilate's frequent uh, headbutting with them, his dislike for them, it's not surprising that there was tension between them. And in fact, we know historically that uh, Herod had appealed to the emperor to intervene against Pilate at one point uh, in, in a past altercation, which Pilate resented. But the the two men become friends here over their mutual mistreatment of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? What a great thing. 
These two men need to read Psalm 2 and be reminded of what happens to earthly rulers who set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, a psalm that they are fulfilling at this very moment. So while Herod is not a fan of Jesus, he has still not found a reason to formally convict him of anything, and so he sends him back to Pilate. And we'll see what happens as we pick up again, beginning in verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! And released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so as we pick up again in verse 13, Pilate calls the council of the Sanhedrin back together, uh, along with people who have begun to gather around, and he renders his verdict. He explains, I, I've heard your accusations, but I haven't found anything to substantiate them. And he appeals to Herod. Herod didn't find anything either. And so he proposes to punish Jesus and then release him. The word for punish here refers either to being beaten by a rod or, or being whipped repeatedly. And right here we can see cracks in Pilate's moral foundation, right? What kind of justice is this? Pilate has, has affirmed that he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. He hasn't broken any law, and yet he is still willing to subject him to severe physical punishment simply in order to appease the Jewish leaders. Right? He assumes that if, if they just beat Jesus up a little bit, then, then that will satisfy the, the Jews and we can all go home. But that isn't good enough for the religious leaders. In verse 18, they cry out, away with this man. And they call for the release of a man named Barabbas. Now, Matthew and Mark both record that, that every year at Passover, it was customary for Pilate as a, a gesture of goodwill towards these people that he didn't really like, but he had to deal with. He would release one prisoner, one Jewish prisoner, back to them. And so Pilate once again tries to get Jesus off the hook by suggesting that he punish and release him under those terms. But the Sanhedrin doesn't want Jesus. That's why they're here in the first place. And so they reject Pilate's offer and they demand the, the release of this man named Barabbas. Now Luke tells us that Barabbas is an insurrectionist. Uh, in other words, he is a Jewish nationalist. He is a terrorist who is committed to trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. 
and who's no doubt been imprisoned for his role in some kind of riot or, or even an assassination. And there's a thick irony here, if you think about it, that, that the Sanhedrin is accusing Jesus of being a revolutionary who is trying to overthrow the Roman government, and yet they are asking for the release of a man who is that very thing. Right? This doesn't make any sense. Right? But of course, sinful hearts don't operate logically. And so the religious leaders resort to, to seeking to get what they want simply by the sheer power of, of outrage and protest. And so as, as Pilate insists that Jesus should be released, they refuse to take no for an answer, and they shout over and over again, crucify him, crucify him. In verse 22, Pilate protests a third time, why? What has he done to deserve that? But again, the crowd is urgent and continues to call for Jesus to be crucified. And so now Pilate is in a difficult spot. You see, part of him is committed to serving justice, at least in the main, and he knows that Jesus is innocent. But part of him also recognizes that if this mob continues to grow out of control, then it could develop into something that is legitimately dangerous and that could potentially threaten his job if it is seen that he is unable to control the people. And so eventually, Pilate decides that, that even though it's not right, it's better for one person to die than to risk mass chaos. And he makes a choice that is in his own best interest by delivering Jesus over to their will. He is going to be crucified, which we'll see when we come back next week. But in our passage this morning, Jesus' words uh, begin to be fulfilled in his predictions of rejection by the Jews and being handed over to the Romans and being killed. These things are fulfilled as he stands trial before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and Herod, and as he is ultimately handed over to be executed. And perhaps it's, it's the fact that, that most of us here are sympathetic towards Jesus, or, or maybe it's just our modern sensibilities, but, but the injustice of everything that happens here just, just crawls all over you, or at least it does me. It makes me mad to read and think about it. Right, the boldness, the audacity, the, the arrogance. Here you have God in the flesh standing before you. And, and you beat and mock and, and dress him up like a court jester for your entertainment. But then if we're honest, and if we believe what the Bible says about us, then, then we have to realize that all we see here really is a picture of our own hearts. And apart from God's grace, every single one of us rebels against God's authority over us. And if we had the opportunity and the ability, we would do the exact same thing. But what about Jesus? Why is he doing this? If this was any one of us being treated this way by the very people that we have created and sustained, we would wipe out the entire world on the spot. You will not treat me like this. And yet Jesus is enduring this treatment. And he's, he's doing it because what he has come to do is fulfilling a plan for our salvation that must be fulfilled. Jesus has come to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Later on, Peter would explain in his 
first letter in chapter 3 that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we have to understand that, that behind everything that is happening here that is visible, there is an invisible plan that is at work for our salvation. And Jesus endures all of this for our sake, for the, for the sake of the very people who are treating him this way. Friends, that is a love that is beyond description. It is beyond description. I really think that this is the whole point of Barabbas. As we've, we've talked before about the fact that all four of the gospel accounts highlight different details of the story. But all four stories record the story of Barabbas. And which indicates that that's something that they all saw as something that is important to understand. And, and what happens here? All right, Barabbas is guilty. He does deserve to die. But because Jesus is condemned, he is allowed to go free. And in that, Barabbas becomes a living illustration of the gospel message. Right? Jesus experienced what he did not deserve, which is God's judgment, so that you and I can experience what we do not deserve, which is God's mercy and grace. And in order to receive this salvation, we are called to repent of our sin, to recognize it for what it is, and to turn away from it, and to place all of our hope for salvation in what Jesus has done to save us. Right, what we are reading about right here is the very heart of Christianity. We have a Savior who suffered and died for us because there is no way that we can get to heaven on our own. Right, if we could, then Jesus wouldn't have had to do any of this. But here, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I, I was thinking just a, a few moments ago as we were singing that, that if you're here and you don't have a church background, then it probably seems really weird for you to show up somewhere where people are singing all these weird songs about being washed in blood. Like, where am I? Who are these people? But it's because the only way that we can be saved is through the sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus was willing to do that for us. And so this morning, may we respond to the gospel by believing this message. And may God's intense love for us inspire a greater love for him. Let's pray together.